0: All right, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Um, thankful for the weekend that we had, the week that we uh, that has followed, um, and the chance that we have to be in Romans chapter six this morning. We are talking about the resurrection of Jesus um, in Romans chapter six, and um, and what I love about Romans six, man, it, it contextualizes it, man. We're we're not just talking about the resurrection as a, an issue of historical importance. We're talking about it as as a, an issue of vital daily importance, right? Uh, that 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 it is about our freedom in our relationship with God. It is about our freedom in uh, in this life. and And here's what I want you to catch, you guys. Romans six. I I think it is. There's such an emphasis, especially in the middle of the chapter, which is why I'm I'm being careful as we build up toward it. Next week, by the way, is going to be a bit of a um a rear kicker, uh, it, it is, uh, it's going to get you. Okay. Uh, because it's been getting me and I'm looking forward to that. Um, but I've been careful in building it because here's the thing. I think often when we come to Romans six and we come to, to verses like, do not present your members as sins of, uh, of instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. You know, do not let sin have, have dominion over your, the members of your body. I think often, um, those, are the, those, are, those are words that at times can feel very weighty. They are weighty, but I mean like weighty in the wrong way, like they weigh us down instead of lifting us up. They, they feel a little condemning because we know that uh, uh, we, not, having, not allowing sin to have dominion in our lives is kind of a really broad statement, right? And, and I still sin, right? And so I, I just feel like I'm continually walking around in disobedience to this stuff, man. We're going to get there next week. I'm telling you, man, this is beautiful stuff. And what I want you to see is, is Romans 6 isn't a, talking about how to make you a good moral Christian. That's not the goal of the gospel. That is not the goal of the Christian life, right? Being a good moral Christian is the byproduct of the goal. It's a horrible goal. The goal is talking about, to you about how to be human. How to be human as you were meant to be human. How to be human as God created you to be human. Because when we are human as God created us to be, we will be good. And we will see the beauty of morality. And we will find energy to follow God. So, a few questions as we start out. Some of the pain points with. That, that, that we encounter uh, as we struggle with what it means to be human, as we were created to be human, right? Do you have a hard time resting in your productivity, like finding joy in your work? Do you have a hard time not being competitive, not comparing yourself to others, not feeling superior when you're doing better and, and condemned when you're not? Do you have a hard time resting? Do you have a hard time, like like, just finding peace? And resting in the fact that God loves you, and finding joy, like genuinely being refreshed, not just distracted. Do you have a hard time uh, overcoming besetting sins and shortcomings? Do you do you have a hard time giving yourself grace for your failings? Do you have a hard time dealing with those things that that seem to be the Achilles' heel? of your spiritual and emotional well-being? Do you have a hard time forgiving someone who's hurt you? Do you have a hard time feeling jealous of others? Always always finding yourself on the comparison chart. Do you find yourself having a hard time with anxiety? Feeling fearful? and, And hoping that you have sound. All right. I'm totally distracted right now. I'm tempted to tell you a story, but I'm not going to. It's a funny story, but it will distract you, so I'm not going to tell you. Um, are you tired? Are you tired, right? Are you tired of... of looking to things that can't make you secure and hoping they're going to make you, things that can't make you significant and hoping they'll give you a sense of, of, do you have a hard time feeling worthy of love? Listen, y'all, those are human struggles. That's what we're talking about, right? We're not just talking about getting you moral. That is such a horrible and shallow goal. We're talking about freeing you to be human, freeing you to be what God created you to be. So if you're struggling, the first thing I want you to hear is that you're normal. If you're not struggling, I want to tell you you're a liar. Like honestly, you may just be really good at deceiving yourself. Maybe maybe that's the root of it. You've gotten so used to your dog and pony act that you forgot that it's an act, right? Like for real. If you're struggling, you're human. Because as we're going to see in our text today, this season is the season of struggle, right? We live between the two advents, between the first coming and the second coming of Christ, between the crucifixion and resurrection and his return and our resurrection, right? We we live in this space and this is a season of struggle. You're normal. So take comfort in that, knowing that there is grace for you In that you are normal. This is a season of struggle, but it is not a season of hopelessness. This is not a season to pretend. This is not a season to perform. This is a season to push in by faith and engage the incredible beauty at the heart of the gospel because Jesus left us with a promise in the gospel and the power to engage that promise and live it out progressively in our lives. So the critical question for us is whether or not we're going to engage what God has given by grace and move forward with it in faith. Are we going to engage the promise that God has given us? Are we going to engage the power that he has given us in that promise? And are we going to move forward progressively learning what it means by faith? So let me remind you where we are in the letter. Let me remind you where we are in the context I keep going back in order to move forward, but that's because Paul at this stage of the game, man, it is such a progressive thought, such a progressive argument that I want to make sure that, that I'm not leaving bits and pieces of it out because if, if we miss that, uh, we're going to miss a, a significant part of what Paul is saying, right? So back in Romans 5.2, Paul made an incredible statement that we spent weeks exploring, right? That we now, because we are justified by faith, and we stand in grace we now boast in the hope of the glory of god right our kahalmai our boast our sense of, of of what makes what lifts our head what 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 gives us energy right what what gives us joy right our joy our boast is the hope of the glory of god this progressive anticipation of being what we are created to be right we talked about how the glory of god is um, This, this, uh, glory means honor, right? So, so the phrase means being crowned with the honor of being created in the image of God, being crowned with the honor. So exercising the dominion that's been entrusted to us as those created imago Dei in the image of God, right? That we were created to be stewards of creation and we were created to exercise that dominion, that authority under the authority of God in humble dependence on God, expressing our work as worship to God for his glory and our good, right? That, that, that our hope of the glory of God is, is that, that we now have this eager anticipation that we can be what we were created to be. We can do what we were created to do, right? That, that was Romans 5, 2, right? Now, this isn't one of many blessings in Christ. It is the central blessing in Christ that unlocks all the other blessings, right? This is the one, man, that, that, that kind of allows us to, to then move on from that and, and do all the other human stuff we want to do, Work and rest and produce and love and 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 all of these things, right? This is this is the key that unlocks the ultimate purpose of the human experience, right? That we can be what we we're created to be. And, and then we in Romans 5 went on and talked about how God did that, right? By by taking us out of Adam and putting us in Christ. Right? Because Adam, our first father, um sinned, right? He, he committed the transgression, the sin uh, in his rebellion against God. And um, uh, as the first head of humanity, he, he then created a kingdom of humans of which we are born a part of, right? And, and his kingdom is marked by sin, hamartia, this idea that we are missing the mark because we have the transgression or the rebellion of Adam at the heart of our being, We're continually using our strength or our power to try to find life apart from the God who gives it. So we're always missing the mark, right? So so we are continually trying to find security and significance and worthiness and rest and comfort and joy in all the wrong places, right? And so in Adam's kingdom, uh, we are born with this propensity to miss the mark, right? And as a result, death is the result, right? Death is separation, so we're separated from God, or we're separated from each other, we're separated from our hope, we're separated from where we're going to, you know, what, what we hope our sin is going to give us. We, it is just death upon death upon death upon death in the in the kingdom of Adam, right? Um, and so, and that's all driven because of the, the transgression, the rebellion in our heart, which leads to disordered desires, right? We have deep desires for significance, worthiness, um, comfort, security, and, and, Because we crave these things but can't get them in God's presence, those desires drive us to find them in places we can't get them. Our jobs, our relationships, our our performance, um, how people think about us, Facebook, whatever, right? And, And so we work from death to death, from separation to separation, driven by our disordered desires to try to find the fullness of life in places that we can't get it. Now, into this horrible mix, God gave the law not to make it better, but to make it worse, right? Into this horrible mix, God gave the law, not so that we could be delivered from that kingdom, but so that we would notice we're living in it, right? The law is not grace, but it was given in grace that we might see more clearly because the law showed us how sinful we actually are. It showed us that our best efforts result in death. And and in fact, to make it really clear, it didn't just show us, it increased it, right? The law made the sin worse, It actually stirred up our sinful passions and increased the effects of the transgression. God gave the law not to fix the problem, but to show us that we needed something outside of our own effort, that we were helpless, right? He gave it to humble our pride because we're desperate to fix ourselves. We're desperate to save ourselves. We are desperate to exercise our own power in our own good. That's part of the original transgression. We're desperate not to be humbly dependent on God. That's a place that feels like weakness in our pride. Right? And so, the law was given to make it worse. That led to our passage last week in verses 1 through 4, right? So, Jesus came, born in the kingdom of Adam, in the realm of sin, although he himself was sinless, in the realm of death, even though he himself uh, was not operating in death, and then he submitted to death, right? And as we sang, um, he, he put to death by death, right? He, he, he killed death by, by submitting himself to a death he didn't deserve. Um, he defeated death, right? He was born a Jew under the law. He never broke the law. He, he earned the blessing of the law, the first Jewish person to ever do so, the only Jewish person to ever do so. So he earned its blessing. The covenant was sealed, and the law was, was fulfilled right? The law is no longer a covenant in force. It was a promise and it was fulfilled and it was paid to Jesus. But he died under its curse, a curse he didn't deserve, right? And and, and in dying under the weight of all of our failure, as our substitute in our place, paying a price we couldn't pay, satisfying God in regard to the justice we deserved, he defeated death. And then he rose again right and in doing so he created a new humanity right because he was the first fruits of those who were raised he wasn't just raised for himself he was raised for us and we enter this new humanity by faith when we believe in Jesus right we don't just get uh, a, a new glorious by and by right the glorious by and by becomes our our present reality and the gritty here and now right we we, we get transferred into this realm of of, of grace, right? We're no longer standing on our own performance. We're standing in the undeserved love of God, of righteousness. We're going to talk more about this a little bit this week, but more, more next week. And resurrection, this idea of, of, of our hope in the resurrection, but living in the new life of the resurrection, okay? So last week, this led to this idea in chapter four, right? So if sin increases and, and God's grace increases all the more, shouldn't we sin more to increase God's grace, right? That was the, the opening question in chapter six. Of course, his answer was, may it never be, right? Shouldn't we just sin so that grace will abound? He says, may it never be. May Genoito, which was very strong. It means, it means not a chance, not, no way. Like, nah, right? And what I want you to catch, and what we need to keep reminding ourselves, is when Paul says this, the attitude behind it isn't how dare you. How dare you ask such a question, right? That's not the attitude behind it. It's, it he's asking, why would you? Why, why would you go back to that when you've got this? Why, why would you use this as an excuse to go back to that? Why, when you're covered in, in the beauty and the glory of the resurrection, would you put back on the death clothes... And go back to empty pursuits that can't give you what you're hoping they're going to That's insane, right? So that's kind of the thrust of, of those opening four verses, right? Man, you were in Adam without a choice and enslaved to your disordered desires. You were in the asylum, right, of all humanity. The craziness of everyone doing what everyone else is doing. Watching everyone else fail to get what they're hoping to get and somehow thinking we're the exception, right? Nobody else is getting the good stuff at the end of that path, but I don't know, maybe it'll work out for me, right? It's kind of like the guy who's like, well, you know, I know riches don't bring happiness, but I'd like to find out for myself, right? It's the insane path of thinking that I can do what I've always done, but somehow I'm going to get what no one else has ever gotten, right? We've been delivered from the asylum, We've been delivered from the insanity of our worldliness, this, this addiction to try to find the fullness of life apart from the God who gives it, find the fullness of life in ways that we, you know, looking to the world to give us what only the creator of the world can give. So we look to our jobs and money and relationships and fame and success and, 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 and walls and alarm systems and, and, and all of these things to find our significance and our security and our worth and our joy and our comfort. And these false gods never fail to fail. And we never fail to forget it. That's the insanity of our sin. Jesus was born to break us out of the asylum. Jesus was born as a human to create a new humanity. So he killed death and he rose again and then invites us to receive the benefit by grace through faith. And when you had your conversion baptismal experience, if you've become a believer in Jesus and Paul's thinking, those are simultaneous, right? In Biblical history, that was people became believers, they were baptized, right? Um, So when you had your conversion baptismal experience, you were submerged into Jesus's death and raised into his new life. And as a result, you are no longer in Adam. You are now in Christ, a loaded phrase that Paul loves to use, uh, not only in Romans, but throughout his writing. You are now in Christ. You are now in the new humanity, created in the image of Christ and broken free from the, the broken, ugly image of our first father. We are no longer enslaved to death. We now walk in the newness of life. We no longer have to be constrained by our disordered desires. We can identify them. And no longer be enslaved to them. So if we have grace, why wouldn't we keep walking in sin? Because we're not an Adam anymore. We're no longer enslaved to these disordered desires. We're no longer blind to the insanity of that path. We're in a new position in a new humanity. We are in Christ, and in Christ we have life. And, and, And in Christ we are once again connected. We're no longer dead in our relationship with God. We now have an intimate connection with our creator God. He invites us into his presence. He doesn't wait for us to prove ourselves. He doesn't wait for us to become worthy. He He is waiting for us simply to be humble enough to come into his presence and feast on his grace. Why would we voluntarily go back to the asylum? Now, let me just say something. We do it a lot, don't we? Right? Don't we voluntarily go back to the asylum a lot? Let's just admit it, okay? Paul knows that. We're going to get into that, so so don't think, sit here thinking, well, Steve, I, I I kind of do that a lot. Join the club, okay? I know that's the tension, right? So I don't want you to feel condemned. I don't want you to. Th- this passage is for you, because if if that's not you, I don't know who you are. That was Paul's experience, that is my experience, and and I guarantee it's your experience, even if you're not aware of it, right? So we have a new position in humanity, in Christ, right? And in verses 5 through 9, we're going to be focusing on 5 through 10 this morning, Paul digs in to this new power that's ours in Christ, but he wants to show us that it's a power in tension, right? Because there's a tension at the heart of our, our current Experience, right? Our boast in the hope of the glory of God is real. Like, like we are, we, we have every expectation, right? So biblical hope isn't a vague um, anticipation or a vague maybe this will happen. It's a confident hope based on a promise. Right, so, so our hope in the glory of God is well-founded because it is given to us uh, as a result of the resurrection of Christ. So, so that is real and that is true, but our reality is often the disappointment and shame of sin. Our reality is often the struggle of falling short of that hope of pursuing false gods, of, of trying to find significance or security or rest or joy in things that can't give them, right? So, so the first thing Paul does is tell us where we are in this tension, right? What is currently true of us, whether it feels like it or not, okay? So verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, which is what he's everything he's been exploring here, Right? If we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Notice what he does. If we have been united with him in a death like his, he points us back to the death and resurrection of Jesus, uh, and and the fact that we are united with him in that death through our, our faith, right? We believe in Jesus. His death becomes our death. He was our substitute and our hero, right? And then he points us forward. We shall also be in a resurrection like his. The primary implication here is that you also shall be raised. Your resurrection, your future resurrection, is as sure as his resurrection. Because you're in Christ. This isn't an if or a maybe or a could be or a would be or and it's not in any way dependent on your being willing to earn it or merit it or or somehow be worthy of it. It is yours because he already won. The price has already been paid. It is not contingent in any way on anything you do or don't do. It is already one, right? So surely, he says, certainly you shall be united with him in a resurrection like his. This is a, a what we would call an eschatological tension. And you're like, that doesn't sound good. Um, eschatology is a study of end times. So when we talk about eschatology, what we're talking about is is the way future events are going to play out. And when we talk about eschatology or the eschatological tension, what we're talking about is that tension that that it's not yet here, but the benefits are already present. It's the already not yet tension of the kingdom of God. That there are aspects of the kingdom of God that are not yet realized, because they have not come to pass in human history yet, but their benefits are already present. There is an all there is a not yet, um, uh, there is a, a not yet, already here, right? Already not yet tension in this verse that he's he's like, man, this is where you are. So so see where you are in the story of God. See where you are in redemptive history, right? And then in verse six, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Uh, I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this verse. This is dense and there are a lot of key ideas here. And and so uh, let's dig into this a little bit, right? It is the critical verse in this paragraph, right? So we live between the Advents. We live in the already not yet tension of Jesus already winning, but us not yet fully receiving the benefit of his victory. Right? We're not raised yet. That, that's yet to come. Um, and, and so we live waiting for the resurrection. Right? We live in the benefit of His resurrection, waiting for our resurrection. We live in the benefit of our forgiveness, not yet fully experiencing our redemption. Right? We've been redeemed positionally. Right? We're already in Christ before God. But we are not yet fully redeemed. We, we still struggle with sin. We still live in a broken world, and we still work in broken systems, and we're part of those systems, right? So we are changed now, but we are being changed to what we will be. That's the process right now. He's like, one thing you need to catch in this process, your old self is already dead, right? We know that our old self was crucified with him, right? Even as you struggle, your old self is already dead. Now, the word for self here, some, some versions will translate this as old man. We're not talking about how old anybody is, right? He's talking about the, the, the old self, the old man. The Greek word for self or man here is anthropos, uh, which means human, which just fits the broader theme that, that Adam was the first human. And Jesus was the second. And it was Jesus and his humanity that redeemed a new humanity. Your old humanity is dead. Who you were in Adam, when you believed in Jesus, was crucified to the cross with Jesus. And when Jesus was taken down, who you were stayed up there. It didn't come down. It's dead. Who you were outside of Christ, who you were in your sin, who you were in in, in that pre-conversion state is still hanging on the cross. We know that our old self, the old man, was crucified with Christ. When you you believe the gospel, um, something beautiful happens, right? When, When Adam sinned, we know that he died. But think about the order in which he died. Right, Jesus, God said, "In the day you eat of the tree, you shall surely die." Right, and you're like, "Wait a minute, he didn't. He didn't die. Yeah, he did. He died spiritually. He he had a separation between himself and God, and between himself and himself, and himself and and Eve, and himself and creation. Right, so death became his experience that that critical separation, which then later led to his physical death, the separation of his soul from his body. Right, so he died first spiritually, and then he died um, physically. Later, and what's beautiful is that this works in the same way uh, when we believe the gospel. Right, we are made alive spiritually, and then later we will, in the resurrection, experience the full resurrection of the full being made alive in the resurrection of our bodies. Right. So, so in a sense, that you're already the old man's dead. Your old humanity is gone. Right. That's already taken place. And then the verse tells us that this took place for a purpose, right? So it says that, that the old, old man or the old self was crucified in order that with the purpose, right? So, so Jesus left your old self, your old man, your old humanity on the cross. Why? So that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. And you're like, Steve, I still sin. I think I'm the exception, or maybe I'm not even in. No. (laughs) Okay, let's understand what he's saying. Okay? Jesus left your old humanity on the cross so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So the first question, what's the body of sin? What does it mean for it to be brought to nothing? Right? Just simple, inductive Bible study questions. What is the text even saying? How do I understand it? Right? So the word for body here is the Greek word soma, which speaks of your physical body as the instrument with which you act on and interact with the world. It's your physical body, your soma. Okay, it is, This is the vehicle through which your eyes, your hands, your tongue, your, your brain, this is the vehicle through which you interact with the world around you, Right, acting upon it, engaging it, um, working out your, your you know, exercising your power uh, to work with culture, to challenge culture, to create culture. It is the instrument with which we um, act on the physical world around us. So the word soma, the Greek word soma, doesn't carry a positive or a negative connotation. It totally depends on the context, right? Because it's the same word that's used to talk about us as being the body of Christ. We are the physical hands and feet of Jesus. We, we interact with the world in the power of the gospel. God interacts with the world through us. We are the body of Christ, right? The word speaks of that which interacts with and acts upon the physical world, right? So being called the body of Christ indicates not just our internal relationship to one another, but the fact that we exist to exercise the grace of God in our interactions with the outside world, right? So soma is is a word that doesn't carry a negative or positive connotation. It's neutral in in its connotation, But, but here it's talking about the body of sin. So he's talking about our physical bodies in a very specific way, right? That this is the physical body that we use to pursue sinful ends, let me define, once again, I keep going back, but I think it's important, sin, hamartia. It means to miss the mark. This is the instrument we use to miss the mark. Our hands, our feet, our tongues, our eyes, our thoughts, our ambitions, uh, the life, that the, everything from, how, uh, you know, it, it, this is the vehicle, this is the tool that we use to interact with the world, to miss the mark, right? So, so when I... When I use my body, my tongue, my mind, to try to find my ultimate significance through my job. That is my body of sin. When I use my tongue to degrade another image-bearer of God, Facebook, behind their back, or from one of those rare people that just speaks the truth, which means nothing about speaking the truth, just means being comfortable being publicly rude, um... Then, then I use my tongue as part of my body of sin, right? When I, when I pursue, so, so it incorporates, I want you to catch this, it incorporates all the ways that I use my physical body to, to pursue the fullness of life apart from the God who gives it, right? This is the vehicle of my worldliness. This is how I try to find the, the fullness of life, apart from the God who gives it, in my interaction and the use of the world to find my ultimate needs satisfied apart from God, right? So remember that that, that because the, this transgression drives through us through those disordered desires, the body becomes the vehicle through that, right? We, we want security, so we chase jobs and fame. We want to be worthy, so we chase sex and, and likes. So we, we want to be secure, so we ch- chase money. We want good things only God can give, but we don't trust God, so we chase them in things that pretend to be God. The way we interact with the world is fundamentally sinful because we are fundamentally worldly. All right. So the old man was crucified so that our body of sin, the vehicle through which we work out our worldliness, the vehicle through which we interact with the physical world might be brought to nothing. Um, That is a literal translation. I think it's a little bit unfortunate because I don't think it clarifies what this means at all. Uh, The Greek word katargo that is translated to nothing means useless or lazy or without power. And I think that's much closer to Paul's intention. That that the body of sin might be made powerless. Powerless. That, that the driving force that animates the use of our body for worldly pursuits might be robbed of its power. Our old man was crucified. Our old self, the peer person we were outside of Christ before conversion, was left on the cross. Why? So that our desperate need to continually use our body and all the instruments of our body, Right? Don't just think hands. Think of all the ways we interact with the world. For worldly pursuits, we could be set free from that power. We could be set free from that dominion, which that's a word he's going to use in in a few verses, right? So that the body of sin might be made powerless. And, And then he tells us why. I love this, this chain of so that. Right? So at the end of the verse, right, we know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. When we were in Adam, we were slaves of sin. We had no choice but to be worldly because we were cut off from God, the source of life. And so we had to look to what we had, the physical world, to meet our deepest needs, which could only be met in a non-physical love uh, eternally coming from from God, right? Now we're in Christ, baptized into this new humanity, into this new reality, been baptized into His death, crucified with Christ. And then in His resurrection life, we, we now can respond to God's love as the new animating power of how we interact with the world, right? We have this new, we are set free from the dominion of the fall. So we're going to talk about this more later, but but I'm just, I'm going to keep coming back around to this because I think there are certain evangelical assumptions that that are just short-sighted and honestly, needlessly confusing, right? It doesn't, the end of the verse doesn't say so that you would sin less. That's not what the verse says, that that Jesus did all of this so that you would have fewer numerical sins in your life. And and that's what maturity is, is you have fewer numerical sins in your life today than you had a year ago, right? And if you have more, then that means you're backsliding and and somehow you've regressed and and you're farther away from what God intends you to be. That's not what the verse is saying, it is not saying that that he did all of this so that you would sin less he was saying it he's saying that he did all of this so that you would be free do you see the fundamental difference the, the goal is not your moral purity that's the byproduct the goal is your freedom the, the goal is is this beautiful thing not about what you don't do but about who you get to be. That you get to be who God created you to be. You you get to do what God created you to do. You get to be free, right? He did this, that you might be set free. This, Paul says, is God's ultimate purpose in the death and burial and resurrection of Christ, to free us, right? To, To free us let me remind you that where do we stand in, in the redemptive story? We live in the already not yet tension between the Advents. Because some of you are thinking, Steve, I, I get that, but I'm not free, right? I'm totally not free, right? I know what I did last week. I know what I did last night. Right? I, I know all the failures. I know. I get it, all right? So stick with me. He, he's telling you what's true, and then we're going to talk about how What to do with it, right? This is true, even in your current condition, right? Jesus is already raised and his resurrection is already yours, even though you are currently living the already not yet tension of of having received a benefit but not yet fully able to engage it and walk in it, right? So take a look at verses 7 through 10, because in verses 7 through 10, um, Paul makes these truths again, but, but he does it in a way that just drives it home and makes it clear, right? For one who has died has been set free from sin, right? That he just just to make a point, right? Corpses don't sin, right? One who has died is set free from sin, or more specifically, one who has been set free from the realm of death is no longer under the control of death. The one who has died is set free from sin, specifically the dominion of sin, right? Verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, right? Reiterating. If we've been buried into his death through baptism and conversion baptism, we also will be raised with him. We have all the confidence that he who began the work will complete it, right? That that he he who already won will fully give us his victory. Verse 9, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again, right? This wasn't a temporary resuscitation. He's not Lazarus 2.0 right? Lazarus was raised from the dead, but temporarily he died again, right? Poor guy. He had to go through it twice, okay? Uh, Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, it was not a resuscitation; It was a resurrection because he defeated death. It wasn't just a temporary postponement of the inevitable. It was a changing of the inevitable. It was a great reversal of everything of what we've known, right? We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him because He destroyed that dominion. He killed death. Verse 10, for the death He died, He died to sin. Complex idea. Let's just simplify it like this. Remember that the essence of death is separation. Christ has created the ultimate separation between Himself and and the dominion of separation. He has cut a chasm between himself and his humanity and the death that was the dominion over the first. He died to sin. The death that he died, he died to sin. He created a separation between himself and that dominion, and that dominion has, has no power over him. It has no relevance to his current reality, Right? And the life that he lives, he lives to God, right? He lives in vital connection with the source of life himself. Now, he always did, right? His whole earthly life, he walked in in humble dependence on his father. He walked in vital connection and and intimate love, right? God loved him. He responded to that love. He did everything his father told him to do. He walked in obedience. He he walked in, in joy, right? But when he entered our death, He tasted our separation and then killed it. And the life that he now lives, he lives to God. Verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the critical transition that's going to introduce the next paragraph. Now, next week, we're going to dig into this next paragraph. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. But let's just set it up with this. Let's take a look and understand what this verse is saying. Because I can't tell you how many times over the, especially over the first couple of decades of being a Christian, I would come to this verse and I would read it, and I would be like, I understand what it says, but I have no idea how to do what it says. I understand what it says, and I can teach it, I can explain it. But how do I live its reality? Because I know my heart. And even when I've got all of my, my moral furniture properly arranged around the living room, I know the restless sin that's still in my heart. The stuff people can't see. The stuff that I know is there and, and I don't want people to know is there because if they knew, <laughs> like I would be rejected from community and no one would even re- let me around. You know what I'm saying? Like, like if, I, if you saw. So what do we do with this? All right, let's, let's, let's look at the verse and see what it says and then talk about what it means. So you also having all this beautiful truth, what is true about Jesus, what is true about this new humanity, you also, you, every believer, not, not the varsity team, right? I'm on the JV. I'm not sure. That, no, you, right? So get that, right? You also must consider yourselves dead to sin. The first thing he's asking us to do is not go out and be dead to sin. The first thing he's asking us to do is to accept the truth about who Christ is and who he says we are and receive it by faith. Consider yourselves. The verb means to take what is true and consider it true of you, even if it doesn't match your current reality, even if it feels like the clothing doesn't fit properly, even if it feels like it's describing somebody else, you, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Understand that what is true of Christ, believer, is true of you. You're dead to sin. You have been separated from the dominion of sin. You no longer live in the former humanity of Adam that was enslaved through its disordered desires to try to find the fullness of life apart from God. You are alive to God. You are received by God. You are cherished by God. You stand in the grace of God. And because you do, you now have a vital connection to God. The first thing he asks us to do is very simply receive by faith what we know to be true in the work of Christ. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. But Steve, that doesn't match my current reality. Consider yourselves. But Steve, you don't know how much I failed. Consider yourselves. But Steve, I'm not Jesus. Consider yourselves. Stop looking at you. I I don't know if you've noticed, but Paul hasn't spent any time at all in this passage talking about you. He's filling your vision with Jesus. He's filling your vision with the one who died and rose again. He's filling your vision with the one who is your substitute and your hero. He is filling your vision with the one who is the head of a new humanity and reminding you what is true of him he has declared true of you so this week is as a, as a closing um, illustration um, I don't know I'm sure a lot of positive thinking gurus out there use this illustration of, of the elephant and the stake. some of you have heard this I started thinking about it I think it's a pretty powerful illustration I, I even went to the lengths of looking it up to find out if it's true um, but but the, the illustration is this, that, that in the old days, in the old circus, right, they would take a, a small elephant and they would stake it to the ground, and, um, and, and then they would stake it strongly enough that the small elephant couldn't pull itself free to the point that it, it assumed it was enslaved to the stake, that it was stuck there, right? And then when the elephant became full-grown, it just assumed it was true, so it never tested it. it, never, it, it you could stake a full-grown elephant to the ground with a stake. Even though it was more than capable of pulling free, it wouldn't even try um, because it had been trained or conditioned in its youth. And the idea behind it is this. Sometimes it doesn't matter what's true. What matters is what you consider to be true. Right? Now, I did look it up to find out if it's true, and and elephants are ridiculously intelligent. And sometimes it's true, sometimes it's not. And, And to make it true, they had to be ridiculously abusive with elephants. So I don't like the illustration at all. But the point is this. Sometimes what you consider to be true becomes your truth. Not that it actually is true, true, right? Jesus declares what's true, true, but it becomes true in your governing behavior. It becomes true in your human experience. If you assume that you cannot forgive someone, you will not forgive them. If you assume that you cannot break free from a besetting sin, you will not find freedom. If you assume That that you will fail. What you consider to be true doesn't change what's actually true, but it shapes what you experience to be true. Jesus, or, or Paul is starting by focusing this on Jesus and saying, consider this to be true, even if it doesn't match your current or past experience. You are not who you used to be. You are not who you think you are. You are who he's declared you to be. You are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And next week, we're going to be looking very specifically at how this plays out in our current struggle. We'll go there next week. Let me close this in word of prayer. We're going to share communion. We'll continue worshiping. Father, I thank you for the goodness of your gift of grace. I thank you that you see us not as we are, But as who you've declared us to be through the work of Jesus, I I thank you that that's not a work of fiction. But it is real and true because who I was has been crucified. Jesus died as my hero, my substitute in my place. And in taking my death, he put to death who I was. That I also might be raised to newness of life in him. Lord, we struggle to believe this is true. We struggle to to see the world through this new lens. We struggle to, to recognize that, that our bodies are no longer enslaved to the disordered desires that still rise up within us to try to find the fullness of life apart from humble dependence on you. Lord, I pray that this week you'll help us just to grow a little bit and understand what it means to consider this truth to be true. I, I pray that this week you'll help us to to have hope where we've been hopeless, to start yearning for freedom in places that we've become too comfortable with our slavery. That, that we will that we will start recognizing that, that that we are who you have created us to be. Meet us in this. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen.